Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled Back in the East, Part 2. Last time we took a brief look at the Jesuit missions to the Far East, namely Japan, China, Vietnam, and India. We encountered the revolutionary approach to mission work of Alessandro Valignano and his spiritual heirs, Michel Ruggieri and Matteo Ricci. Their accommodationist approach to evangelism, where the gospel was communicated by seeking to build a cultural bridge with the high civilizations of the Far East, was officially suppressed by Rome, even though it had amazing success in planting a healthy and vibrant church. So healthy was the church in Japan that it came under fire from a fierce resurgence in Japanese nationalism that expelled the Jesuits and persecuted the church, driving it underground. From the dawn of the 17th century, both Dutch and English trading interests moved into Asia. Their commercial and military navies dominated those of other European nations. The Dutch established bases in Indonesia and created a center at Jakarta. The Dutch East India Company was founded in 1602 and carried the Dutch Reformed Church to the East Indies. But don't think that this means that the Dutch conducted missionary work among indigenous peoples. It merely means that they carried their religious institutions with them and built chapels so that Dutch nationals had a place to worship when doing business there. Any converts from among the native population was by accident, not any kind of planned outreach. Dutch interests in the Far East were exclusively commercial. The English equivalent of the Dutch East India Company was the creatively named English East India Company. (laughs) Though the directors of the company were suspicious of missionaries, they appointed chaplains to their trading communities. This provided an opening for those with missionary vision in England and India, such as the parliamentarian William Wilberforce and Charles Grant, an employee of the company. Two outstanding East India Company chaplains were Henry Martin and Claudius Buchanan. Martin was a leading Cambridge intellect and a winner of numerous academic prizes. He and other Cambridge students were influenced by the long ministry of Charles Simeon, whose preaching urged the gospel be taken to all peoples. Martin was a brilliant linguist and translator. He was appointed a chaplain in 1805, translated the New Testament in Urdu and Persian, and prepared an Arabic version before his early death from tuberculosis at just 31. His Indian assistant, Abdul Masa, converted from Islam to become a Christian missionary and advocate of the faith. He was ordained in 1825 as the first Indian Anglican clergyman. Many others were inspired by Martin's life of scholarship and devotion. William Carey, often regarded as the father of Protestant English missions, was both a shoemaker and a Baptist preacher in Northamptonshire. He arrived in India in 1793. He was soon joined by two other Baptist giants, Joshua Marshman and William Ward, making what came to be known as the Serampore Trio. Serampore was the region where they lived and worked. The trio greatly admired the Moravians and shaped their community on the Moravian model. Carey's passage to India had been denied by the East India Company, the de facto government of English holdings in India, with their own hired army enforcing their will on the regions that they operated. That would be like Amazon. That would be like the company Amazon being the city council and law enforcement for Seattle. Later, British colonies in India came under control of the crown. But the East India Company opposed Carey's plan to take the gospel to the Indians. 
Chaplains for the British in India were fine, but they didn't want to foment hostility with the faiths of their trading partners. Carey had one goal in going to India, to evangelize the lost. His passion to raise support in England for foreign missions led to his being derided by critics like Sidney Smith, a clergyman and author of satire who wrote for the Edinburgh Review. But by steady perseverance, monumental labor at biblical translation, long-suffering through family tragedies and the loss of precious manuscripts by fire, Carey faced down all critics, became professor of Sanskrit at Fort William College, and earned the accolade from Bishop Stephen Neal, himself a missionary in India, who said, quote, In the whole history of the church, no nobler man has ever given himself to the service of the Redeemer. Unquote. For North Americans, as an equivalent figure to carry as a pioneer, was the great missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson. Judson received his inspiration to become a missionary from reading the sermons of Claudius Buchanan in 1809. After ordination as a Congregationalist minister, Judson applied to the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. On his voyage to India, he and his wife adopted a Baptist statement of faith. On their arrival in India, he was baptized, having made his change of mind known to William Carey. He was refused permission to work by the East India Company as a Baptist missionary in India, but began work in Rangoon in 1813. His work among the Karen people met with rousing success. His first Karen to be baptized was Kotha Bu, who came from a background of violent crime. Bu became a notable evangelist. The Karen became the largest Christian group of the region. and modern Myanmar, they number some 200,000 Christians in over 1,000 churches. Judson himself became a missionary icon and hero in the mid-19th century North America. China closed its doors to foreigners of all kinds after imperial edicts against Christian preaching in 1720. Robert Morrison was the lone Protestant missionary from 1807, often at the risk of his life. Although the East India Company was hostile to his mission, in 1809 he was employed by them as an interpreter so he could remain on Chinese soil. With the help of William Milne, he translated the entire Bible into Chinese and created a Chinese dictionary, which became a standard work for language studies. He and Mill founded an Anglo-Chinese school in Malacca. But any missionary incursion into wider China was impossible until the treaties of the mid-19th century opened the country by slow degrees. First, the so-called treaty ports became accessible in 1842 in the Treaty of Nanking, forced on China by British commercial interests. The Chinese were desperate for opium from India, supplied by the British, a major source of revenue. A bit later, the Treaty of Tsinsin opened the interior to missionaries, preparing the way for the China Inland Mission. James Hudson Taylor was born in Yorkshire, England, to a devout Methodist family. He trained as a doctor, but before he qualified, offered himself as a missionary to the China Evangelization Society. Because of the political conditions in China during the pro-Christian Taiping Rebellion, he was sent to Shanghai in 1853. Hudson Taylor was inspired by Karl Gutzlaff, who traveled to the Chinese interior between 1833 and 39 as a freelance missionary. Gutzlaff was a German educated at the Moravian School. Drawn to the Far East by the urge to see China won to Christ, he began the Netherlands Missionary Society in 1824 by serving in Thailand, where he translated the Bible into Thai in just three years. In 1828, he broke with the Netherlands Missionary Society because they wouldn't send him to China. 
From his perspective, that's why he had gone to the Far East, and so he became a freelance missionary, distributing Christian literature along the coast. He became an interpreter for the East India Company in Shanghai and helped negotiate the Treaty of Nanjing. He recruited Chinese nationals as evangelists to the interior and raised funds for their support through his writings in Europe, only to find that many of his recruits had deceived him and taken the money for other purposes. Although discredited in the eyes of some, Gutzlov's strategy of using nationals as Christian workers was sound. No one doubted his missionary zeal. Hudson Taylor looked on him as the grandfather of the China Inland Mission and its work to the interior provinces of China. Harkening back to the accommodationist policy of Valignano, Taylor experimented with identification in Chinese dress and the queue, that is the pigtail hairstyle worn by Chinese men. But Taylor caught grief from other members of the missionary community by his going native, as it was called. In 1857, he resigned from the China Evangelization Society that he'd been working with. Stirred deeply by the needs of the Chinese in the interior, Taylor founded the China Inland Mission in 1865, aiming to put two missionaries in each province, recently opened to foreigners after the Treaty of Sinsin. He was now a fully qualified doctor and married Maria Dyer, daughter of a missionary and leader in her own right. He set out with a party of 16 from London to Shanghai in 1866, narrowly avoiding total loss by shipwreck. From the beginning, the China Inland Mission was to be a so-called faith mission with no public appeals for funds, and its missionaries accepted the absolute, if gently applied, authority of Hudson Taylor, described by some as the Ignatius Loyola of Protestant missions. The China Inland Mission came to number over 800 missionaries, including Methodists, Baptists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, and others. It planted churches that had a membership of some 80,000 by 1897. The public profile of the China Inland Mission was greatly enhanced in the 1880s by the arrival of what are known as the Cambridge Seven, two of whom were well-known sports heroes and popularized as making great sacrifices for the cause of Christ. C.T. Studd was one of these, later to found the World Evangelization Crusade and the Heart of Africa Mission, which worked in the Belgian Congo. Hudson Taylor's publication, China's Millions, reached a circulation of 50,000 and helped put the mission in front of the public. The society suffered heavily in the nationalist Boxer Rebellion in China of 1898 to 1900. A total of 200 missionaries, many of them Roman Catholic and 30,000 Chinese Christians lost their lives. The China Inland Mission lost 58 missionaries and several children. Even with this tragic setback, the China Inland Mission continued to be an influential group under its second director, Dixon Host, one of the Cambridge Seven. In 1949, all missionary personnel were expelled by the communists. Hudson Taylor is described by the eminent church historian Kenneth Scott Latteret as, quote, one of the four or five most influential foreigners who came to China in the 19th century for any purpose, religious or secular, unquote. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.